DX podcast. Proudly presented by Wondrous. In this episode, Peter talks to Barnaby Skinner. Hello and welcome to this edition of the DX podcast with Barnaby Skinner, Head of Visuals at the Neuatusha title. Hi. Many thanks for being our guest. Would you mind taking us through where you come from and what your background is? For sure. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, originally I'm English, born in Wales, grew up in the Midlands, but we moved, the whole family moved to Switzerland. I was, uh, I was eight then. I uh, studied history, focusing on history of technology. And I also did language course at university, focusing on uh, learning Arabic. And that led me to, on a, on a trip um, in the Middle East, where after I finished studying, and I ended up in a bar in Beirut, um, sitting next to a, uh, a newspaper editor, the editor of the Daily Star, which is an English language newspaper uh, based in in uh, Beirut. It's it's a, it's a Lebanese paper, but it's English language, and uh, that was led to basically my first job as a journalist. At this at that time, this was around two thousand two thousand one. Um, it didn't just start off my career as a journalist, but it also led me towards what I will be writing about and working on for basically since then, uh, 20 years now, technology. At that uh, point in time, well, there still is, there was a very vibrant uh, startup, technology startup uh, community in, in, in Beirut. And that was something that I started uh, covering. That was also something I was I got involved in part-time in one of these technology startups working on uh, sports content. And that kind of opened up uh, my interest to technology as as something to cover, but also technology as something that that has an impact on um, media itself. That was basically the how everything started for me. Cool. And so then, from Beirut, you then came back to Switzerland. There was a point where I realized if I'd stay on, then I was I was offered a. a job at the newspaper more sort of full-time position previously and i'd been working part-time and i realized if i'd stay on then i would probably i'd probably be still there now <laughs> but i wanted to get back to europe and at the same time there was an opening in uh, for this online news site uh, news.ch run by and owned by a small uh, technology startup then startup based in st gallen called Net. And then I decided that sounded interesting. They were looking for somebody to kind of build up. This was 20 years ago when most newspapers didn't really believe in online news, when it was just something to kind of at best market the newspaper, the printed newspaper. They just putting a few free articles on the net that was supposed to market newspaper. I So I joined the news.ar and I built up a small team of, of uh, writers and editors also video journalists at the time we had a few funny experiments we did then 20 years ago and that me that sort of led me back into switzerland and also into the swiss media scene the job was basically it was there was a lot lot more management it was late than the actual doing actual journalism um so i started freelancing for the for the swiss sunday newspaper uh, sonntagszeitung and that then 
where I was just covering technology, basically early write-ups on what introduction of eBay and Switzerland, stuff like that, very early days before Facebook and long time before Twitter. How old were you at the time? 25, I guess? Yeah, exactly. exactly. The things that you've seen in the last 20 years happening, uh, it's, it's been a sort of a mini revolution, I guess. Oh, amazing, really, yes. I mean, especially, I mean, what's happened now, I mean, I can remember getting the, the Nokia 7630, I think it was, and everybody was laughing, uh, the Radianet then, that's the Sangara company, they got this phone, and a lot of people were laughing at us because it could take a picture, and everybody said, well, why do you want to be able to take a picture with your phone? Um, and look at where we are now. <laughs> Indeed, look at where we are now. Um, so you went on to, to cover technology for the Sontox Zeitung, um, which uh, came out every Sunday. I was just wondering, uh, how, how did you come up with topics for each Sunday? Were you out there researching and, and going to different publications and fairs? Or how would you find ways to you know, stay updated? Well, basically what I, what I did was, I mean, the... It still is today, but a hub, but it's probably changed a lot more now. It's become much more global, the the technology scene. But a lot of what, what was going on in technology, especially 20 years ago now, 20, 18, 17 years ago, was was a course in Silicon Valley. And I used to spend every year, every January, I, I spent a week in Las Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show, which was which is basically the biggest show for consumer electronics worldwide. And a lot of fun as well because it's based because it's in Las Vegas. And then I sp after that I had another two weeks in Silicon Valley where I went around to spend a lot of time at Google, all the big tech companies that are all based around there or have offices there. And then I would come back after three or four weeks over there and basically have enough stories and ideas for the rest of the year that I could that I could use for the Sunday newspaper. That's basically how how it. Uh, how it worked and then there were of course there's the mobile world fair in barcelona which has become more and more important which i covered then the big fair in, in berlin which is in which is always in autumn and then the the uh the hanover Sebit, which has now been cancelled or, or quit altogether i think it was two years ago they quit that um, which at the time was as big as, nearly as big as CES, but more kind of for, for the business world. So it, basically, I used the January stint in the US as a as a as a as an update of what's happening um, in the epicenter of of technology, and then backed it up with with the fairs all over Europe over the over the uh, over the course of the year. But of course, the most interesting thing always uh, in journalism is the, is the actual people. And this is at these places, this is where you got to know people, got to talk about their ideas, and what, they, what they were working on. So you basically just did a, an awful lot of listening. Well, basically, that's what, yeah, that's what journalism is. Uh, half of journalism is what it's about, listening, exactly. And then in uh, 2011, you went on to uh, become a founding member of OpenData.ch? Um, something I believe is, is very close to your heart. Well, yes, what happened um, was that the more I covered technology and the more I understood what was actually going on, the more interested I got in using the tools that I was writing about to actually do reporting. And I started playing around with with tools like Google Fusion or OpenRefine um, to start to, to allow you to, to plot massive amounts of data or to analyze massive amounts of data. 
And I started using these tools to develop stories and tell these stories. And at that point, I was approached by uh, Hannes Gossop, um, who was also a founding member of the Open Data Association in Switzerland. I would like to join him and a row of other people, um, Andre Gollier, uh, Andreas Amsler, uh, um, to, to, to push this topic forward in Switzerland. And that's what, that's what happened. And ever since then, I've been involved in trying to get, trying to open up these data troves, which, which, uh, mainly the Swiss administration have and just don't share readily yet. They have things, we have had a lot of improvements, but uh, there's a, you can see now with the, the, the corona pandemic, I think, um, I think the Swiss health ministry, health ministry has done a good job generally. But where they haven't really done a good job is uh, they've done a good job with communicating um, their their action plan for the lockdown compared to other countries seems to have worked and the opening up of the country seems to be working. But where they haven't done a good job is actually how they're sharing the data timely and in a machine readable fashion, something that most other governments haven't really done well in, um, but the Swiss are especially not. And then from from your open data, you went on to a four-month course at the Columbia School of Journalism in New York. In what way did that help you to um, uh, hone your skills on journalism? Well, as I said, I, was, I got into using these tools, um, these ready-made tools, to, to be able to process data and tell stories, visualize the data, analyze the data, um, and, and gather data as a vast amount of tools out there for you to do that but um they're all kind of limited and um, and the more complex the work gets the, the, the larger the data sets get the more difficult it gets to really find a tool that lets you do what you want to that's flexible enough to do that and doesn't cost thousands and thousands of francs to, to use um and uh tamedia my employer at the at the at the time um, has this program, this eternal program, where they send um, people, journalists that are interested into getting into data to a on a, on a four month course to the Columbia uh, Journalism School in, based in New York, where you basically just spend four months learning how to code, um, learning how to code for you to be able to use these skills to, to do data research, to clean data and to visualize the data and tell stories um, for um, digital in the digital world if you want to put it like that and do you think do you think actually learning those programming skills um, helped you to um, build your own tools or to understand how these tools are built? both i think it gives you an idea of the potential of, of it gives you a different outlook on where to look for stories how you can how you can find the data that you need to tell a story it just gives you new opportunities to to tell. So one 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 larger investigation I was involved in straight after I came back from that uh, um, experience in New York was uh, I was working at the point I was working quite closely with the um, investigative team um, of journalists uh, of Tomedia. That's a group of about uh, eight or nine journalists that work on long term projects like. Panama Papers and, and stuff like that. Um, and one morning, uh, a colleague of mine, Simon Rao, who is a, a great writer, 
G came into the meeting and had this idea. She had said she'd been approached by several lawyers that had been working on uh, um, migrant cases at the Swiss Administrative Supreme Court, which is based in St. Gallen, actually. She's working on these, these, these lawyers been working on these cases, and they had the feeling that depending on the, the uh, political background of a judge, their clients had a worse or better chance of uh, being able to stay in Switzerland or not. Now, in Switzerland, um, like in the US, actually, each member of the Supreme Court has to have a political uh, party backing them because then, then they, the, the amount of judges are distributed according to the, uh, uh, the, the, the distribution in Parliament. So you have uh, um, um, 30% have to be SLP, 20 have to be SP, and so on. And so these lawyers were saying that they felt that the further right these judges were, the less chances they had, which is not really our understanding of how a court should work, um, because you would imagine that everybody has an equal chance in their in the cases, equal cases, equal chance. Now, these court cases, the results of these court cases, the paper is actually all in the database of the courts, and that's freely, freely accessible, the whole, all the whole documentation you can access. That, Point. This was about four years ago now. Three years ago, they had there were about thirty thousand of these cases um, that had been published on the website uh, on the database of the court. So what what we did was then develop a, um, a tool, a scraper, to go and pull down each of every single one of these uh, verdicts from the court's website and create a, our own database with these, and then develop a tool that visited each of these documents and pulled out um, the name of the judge and whether the case was, uh, uh, whether the appeal was uh, um, rejected or awarded. And then there were a few other gray zones as well. So then we could create um, a database of structured, of structured data, um, uh, merging it, merging the names of the judges with their political parties that were backing them. And then we could actually show that uh, in, in figures that the amount of uh, cases that were awarded were prim primarily rewarded by, by judges um, from the left parties, from the left green SP and the ones from SVP um, and, and uh, FDP. They were the ones, they had, their verdicts were much harsher than the, than the other ones. So you had this. And that was that analysis you could only do um, with program. That's data you could only gather and, and, and analyze if you had these uh, data, these, these programming skills. Um, but yes, that, and since then, I've had a, a whole row of stories that, that uh, I basically work with code pretty much every day now. That's one thing is data, right? Um, the, there was a time... Um, where people said uh, data is king, but um, I think the 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 further we go um, along along this the kind of timeline of, of how technology is is, um, is is going forward, context is becoming more and more important. Of course, um, data just by itself is is not worth an awful lot. It has to be contextualized. So I'm I'm assuming you work with a lot of uh, designers as well. I, I agree with you completely. I mean. I Data in itself is, is just, a, just a fraction of what reality is. It will always depending on who gathered the data, why did they gather it. These are, all store, these are all things you need to know to really understand 
the data set. And exactly the to, to be able to then tell stories with a with a data set that's obvious but very often covers a very, very complex subject and it's difficult to just summarize in words. You need to collaborate and work with designers to be able to get the story across. And that's something that's really, really changing journalism. The skill set of journalists becoming much broader and at the same time we need more specialization which and that's that's tough for the for the profession of journalists how do you do that how you become have more broader skills the more specialized skills which, which is a it's a, a challenge yeah. a challenge but a, a fascinating one at that um i think the the publishing industry is at a crossroads and you know, having these these tools at, at your disposal and, and having people like yourself who are um, taking advantage of these tools um, is, I'm assuming, for, fortuitous for the publishing industry itself. Where do you foresee this going? publishing industry is still obviously looking or needs to replace its old build business case. You can't really sell advertising for much, much anymore. The reach of most publishers is just, you just can't compete with the reach that Google or Facebook and, and that have, but what they can do is sell their content. Entertain. They, their their main goal is to to sell subscriptions to to their content. And what we do see is a heightened interest, especially now during Corona. I mean, I think you you were you probably saw all the uh, data reporting that's been going on the past weeks, months, the daily death counts, and then various ways of showing this and describing this and trying to make sense of are we heading is things improving or are things getting worse and what do we have to, what what signals do we have to watch out for if the, if this is so-called second wave of corona cases coming this this type of content doing that is there was a huge demand for this and we can see without i mean the entertainment uh, we sold we can trace back thousands of newly sold subscriptions to specific articles most a lot of these articles were data-driven articles or visual telling a story not just in words but visually so that was really interesting for me to see and i can really see that a part of the solution for the media industry does rely in alternative ways of telling stories and using data more often to tell stories and using visual ways of telling a story more often to, to, to engage users and to make content that they're interested in buying. Well, I think not just engaging, um, but also creating facts, right? Um, I mean, as long as you have, have data that you can follow back to the source, you can, you can uh, you know, basically um, not just claim something, but you can also state it and uh, as a fact. Um, and that's uh, something that obviously... Um, in these days and times, uh, a lot of fake news coming from the left, right, and center, and and you know, there's there's obviously publications out there invest a lot into you know actually these facts, you know, shouting out when when something seems to be um, afoot. <laughs> so yeah, having having all of this data at hand, and and I mean. I think my question is, uh, you mentioned um, before that you were in dialogue with, with Google. And is this, is this something that you can kind of um, foresee coming up in the future, that these channels like um, social media, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, of course, where, where it's very easy to distribute news of all sorts, um, uh, correct or false, 
do you can you foresee um, collaborations happening in the future where serious liberal um, newspapers will uh, will be able to you know b- prove these facts or or something maybe a little bit like a trust label that that can be as established for the long term that's one way of, of, of that's one path i think i think there were there's an institute in geneva that thinking basit zimmermann he heads it swiss citizen digital lab i think it's called Basit Zimmermann is the guy heading this institute, and they are actually. I was I've been in touch with them recently about exactly something along that some some kind of trust label for for content that's distributed in the in, on social networks or via social networks, and then it would can kind of get some kind of certificate from the NZZ, for instance, or other newspapers. I think that's something that that could. But I think uh, large social networks. Um, they've realized that this is a problem. So fake news is a problem, something that in the long run is harmful to them. I think maybe Twitter has realized that more than in Facebook. Facebook still refuses to, for instance, take down false claims that politicians put up on Facebook. I mean, it's a question, should you do that? Should you, when do you do it? It's a very difficult question. But I think generally, also again, to use to use an example during the pandemic, the Facebook and, and Twitter they have been deleting quite a bit of content with with false claims, uh, dangerous claims sometimes so that certain medication helps when actually it doesn't, or even has a contrary effect. They have been deleting such content. But yes, but I I'm not quite sure where the if there will or should be a very close collaboration though from publishers and uh, social media companies. There there have been there have been in the past sort of they've tried collaborate, but there is basically Twitter and Facebook and Google. What they are moving towards more and more isn't just um, being platforms, but they seem to be becoming publishers of these of of content as well. And that's when then you're in total conflict with the publishers that are the old school inverted commas publishers then that's when there's then it's very difficult to collaborate like with like netflix when you sort of, when they start when they as soon as they started creating their own shows then it becomes more difficult for the for the uh big studios to start putting their content on on the on netflix because it started to compete with with content that netflix was uh, producing it's interesting development and i as a, I, I mean the way I don't know uh, w- which way it's going, but it's it's uh, fascinating to to follow anyway. But yes, I think getting back to your point regarding data journalism and data reporting, I think when it comes to credibility, which is the most important asset news publications have, their credibility and the trust that people have in them, I think that data reporting can contribute a lot towards regaining in a lot of the cases the trust that some users of some readers have uh, they have lost in some regions we have reached the end of this digital experience podcast thanks for listening for further information about us please head over to wearewondrous.com